Welcome to Being Human. Delighted to say this week's guest is a major inspiration for me in the lean, agile field, Mike Burroughs, a founder of Agenda Shift and author of Kanban from the inside and Agenda Shift. Welcome to the show. Great to be here and great, great to see you again, Richard. Yes, fantastic. So I would like to start with the genesis of this lean agile journey for you, obviously, um, I guess it started before Kanban from the inside. So is there a, is there an identifiable moment where you started to get hooked on some of these ideas? Um, I, well, as these things, there's lots of streams that sort of contribute um, and a lot of things that happen by accident, I guess. Um, but my background is very much in software development. You know, I started out as, out as a programmer. And um, you know, rose rose through the ranks of um, management in uh, technical organisations, and more. You know, after that, in, uh, in in banks, I was uh, an executive director and global dev manager at, at UBS, for example. Um, left that to be uh, CTO of a energy risk management uh, consultancy. Um, and it was kind of in that transition was when I really started to connect with the agile community generally and the Kanban community specifically. So that's around 2009. Um, I've been very fortunate that for, you know, I'm, I've been very fortunate that over a long enough career, you know, I'm old enough, um, I've never really felt that I was working in what we would now describe as a waterfall environment. Um, you know, mm. I, I've worked with and respected, you know, some great project managers, for example, um, but I've always had the opportunity to do my thing and to experiment and, and get to know my customers and all the rest of it. Um, and, you know, not claiming that I invented Agile or anything like that, but I, I think uh, I've been fortunate always to work in those kinds of ways. There was no sort of road to Damascus moment when suddenly I realised that, uh, you know, the way that we were doing it was all wrong and... and um, you know, we had to do things completely differently. It was much more um, gradual than that. Um, but what I did find, you know, then, yeah. Sorry, I'm just wondering, is it when you when you said you made that transition to CTO and then you connected to the community, was there something in that transition that had you go a bit deeper? Or? Yeah, it's, it's just sort of an environmental change as much as anything. Um, I found, you know, working inside a Swiss bank, it, you know, somewhat difficult to be a fully participating member of a public community. I mean, maybe things are a bit different now, but you know, going back to you know, like the late '90s, um, it just felt like a more, a more, a more difficult thing. Um, but the, the, you know, I, I still worked in an organisation that I still, you know, was, I still feel it still felt quite agile at the time. You know, and looking back on it. Um, you know, I, I think it was definitely things that we would do differently if we were going, if we had a time machine that can go back, you know, twenty years or ten years. Um, but you know, I think uh, I've been very fortunate to work at companies that, you know, maybe not the the bleeding edge, but you know, towards the leading edge of um, of how things are done, how how things work in you know software architecture terms and in organisational terms. Um, so things opened up when uh, I was leaving UBS. I uh, had, a, had a bit of garden leave time. I used a lot of that time to connect with people. Uh, I, I went out to a lot of meetups. I was still living near London at the time. That made it a lot easier, uh, and got to know you know some of the uh, you know 
people in the community. It's really good to actually get to know people as people, you know, rather than just uh, people that tweet and people that blog. Uh, so that was that was really good, really really encouraging. Um, and then I was, uh, as I mentioned, CTO of it. It was a late stage startup, so it had, been go- had actually been going about five years. And it, you know, when a startup's been going five years, uh, it's probably or many many startups are thinking about the exit. And that was very explicit in in uh, in my case. Um, my objective really was to get the technology side of the organisation into such a shape that uh, the company could get some either more investment or uh, get taken over or a merger or whatever it might be. Um, and, uh, you know, to start with a happy ending, uh, it ended up uh, as a reverse takeover. You know, we, we, we didn't merge with a much bigger company, um, but the, the MD of the smaller company, the one that I was in, uh, became the MD of the, of the larger company. Um, so that was a pretty happy outcome for, from, for them. Um, in the meantime, uh, I was a year and a half of you know, getting into shape, as I described. Um, backwards and forwards to Budapest. I did a week in Budapest and a week, week at home. Got to know Ryanair rather too well. Um, and uh, it became the case study. Not, I didn't know it at the time, but it, it, it ended up becoming case study for the first book, The Kanban from the Inside. Uh, what I found was an organization with a massive problem of work in progress. And it's a problem that they came to recognize for themselves. There were some amazing moments that I described in the book where people, for example, started to give up projects when they realized that just having the project out there was causing more harm than than good for the organization. Um, Recognizing that there were actually more projects than there were people in the whole company. Um, That's a problem. the yeah, the MD looking at the you know the list of you know uncompleted actions in the minutes of the management meeting, and realizing that this just has to stop. You know you can't just have a list that only ever grows. Um, and he, he metaphorically, if not physically, you know he sort of tore, you know tore up the the minutes and said you know we've got to find a different way way of doing things. You know, and all that time, you know, we've been visualizing our work, keeping our work in progress under good control and all the rest of it. And, you know, slowly but surely, um, you know, that, understa- that, that understanding, you know, found its way into, you know, other parts of the organization. You know, by the time I left, there were other, other teams on the business side um, using Kanban, for example. Right. Um, and why do you, but that's yeah. common, common in, in organizations to have lots and lots of work in progress, maybe common for us as individuals. Yeah. What, do you, what do you think that is? Why do you think humans are so prone to having lots of things going on? Um, it's very easy to say yes. It's also much easier to start something new than to address the problems in something that you're already doing. Um, and it, it just seems like the path of least resistance, but it's a path of least resistance that is really just a slippery slope down to getting out of control and uh, actually finding you're in a working environment that's much less pleasant than it should be. Um, you know, the, uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, as, as the saying goes. And, uh, you know, without the, the discipline to choose to focus on the, on the right things and the right number of things and so on, uh, you end up with, you know, overburdened systems. And that's, um, that's difficult. That's uncomfortable. Um, by, you know, they're just, 
it's there's lots of ways. I guess there are as many ways to get it wrong. There are more ways of getting it wrong than there are getting it right. I mean, overburdening is only one only one problem, but it's just a very very common common problem. Um, you know, what I'm you know part of what I'm in the business of doing is is making our working environments more humane, uh, so they work well for us, so that we can actually achieve what we want to achieve um, without you know being um, unduly oppressed by or hindered by, frustrated by, um, you know, the, the systems around us. Right. Um, and, and what were the steps you took then in this this company when you were back and forth to Budapest, as you said, what were the steps that you took to get that work in progress under control? Um, it was, uh, I, I had the advantage of coming in, you know, with, with you know, some seniority. So coming, coming in as, as the CTO, um, I made a, you know, as well as the usual interviews and so on, I did do a, I spent a week there, so in an unofficial capacity before I started, um, so that I, well, kind of a two-way thing, uh, I would have a better understanding of, of what I was letting myself in for, uh, uh, and, you know, vice versa, they, they got to see a bit of me as well. And uh, I diagnosed this problem very quickly, um, and found that there was some quite ready acceptance, certainly from uh, you know my senior colleagues, uh, that this was the case. Uh, there was too much activity going on, but not enough to show for it. Um, and they needed some clarity. And I explained, um, well, you know, I know a set of tools that's uh, you know ideal for solving that kind of problem. Uh, uh, and this is why. What I intend, tend to do. Um, it turned out our, our you know, bit of office that I had had a very suitable, you know, suitably large bit of wall uh, to use for um, for visualising it all. And uh, uh, you know, spent some time with the team, you know, explaining to them how how I thought we we could do it. Um, and uh, as you know, I, 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 I start these things gently. You know, we'll, we'll just start with let's let's just visualise our work. Let's see what we're dealing with. And then let's see whether it makes sense or not. Um, and you know, when the answer comes back no, then then the question is, uh, well, what what do we do about it? Um, you know, I had some ready answers to that, but um, that's you know, I, I did did this as a you know as as a manager, you know, fairly experienced manager, it has to be said. But what I've learned now, you know, when I go in now as a coach or consultant, it's very very similar process. It's just you help people to see what obstacles are in the, in the way of um, achieving what they want to achieve. And um, then, then you're looking for some possible ways to, um, you know, to overcome those obstacles and, and achieve what they want to achieve. Um, and uh, I guess I've been, I've been doing that for years. It's just more, it's more formalized. It's more repeatable. It's more transferable now. You know, I, I um, you know, now that I make, um, make a living teaching this stuff to people and writing and so on. You just have to crystallise what it is that um, that makes that, that kind of process work. Right. But it sounds to me like the two, two big elements was, well, perhaps three, there's the fact you had authority, the fact yes. you had experience as a manager, yes. and the fact that you were, a, well, four, as I'm saying, the, 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 a good set of tools which which uh, which you had at hand, <laughs> and your physical space. I mean, and we shouldn't ignore that, right? And that comes up no, over and over I, I, in podcasts. Yeah. Is is wall space? It sounds so yeah. trivial, and yet 
seems to be important. Yes, yes I remember hearing, uh, you hear some hilarious stories. I think, I think it was Benjamin Mitchell told us, um, you know, people creeping off to the fire escape where they kept their, uh, you know, they kept their board. You know, there's something a bit wrong there when, 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 when you're doing that. These things all do, all do con contribute. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's very easy to forget what were all the conditions to, uh, you know, the particular conditions in any, any context that, that make, makes it successful. And the idea that you just transplant I, any any one of those components, I think it's going to guarantee you success somewhere else. Is, is, is isn't right, you know. So you know the, the tool on its own uh, doesn't guarantee success. Although you know we have enough experience now to know that these tools actually do work in a very wide um, range of uh, contexts. Um, different people have different attitudes to things like authority and leadership. I happen to believe in both those things. I've you know experienced the benefit of them. Um, we've all experienced um, bad management and bad leadership and, and so on as well. So, um, you know, you have to take the, take the rough with the smooth uh, and try to understand um, what good looks like and, and, and how you, you know, you be a good manager if your role is to be, to be one uh, and, and so on and so on. Uh, it takes a little bit of humility um, to, to uh, accept that, um, not all your successes were down entirely to your own brilliance, um, but to all these other things that contributed. And uh, you know, a large part of it also is you know, making sure that the the team themselves get all the uh, the credit they they, they deserve um, for it. And in that situation with Budapest, you the the team was was key, was it? Yeah, it was actually um, a very different kind of team to what I've been used to working with before you know i've worked in high-tech industries i've worked in leading investment banks and so on you know generally working with extremely qualified people very experienced people you know used to working with high-tech uh, tools leading edge tools and and so on um and for you know perhaps the first half of my career that was enough for me, you know, I, I I just loved. I was I was you know had, had the chance to play with all these cool things. Um, the uh, Budapest experience was interesting in that half the developers didn't come from a development background. Uh, they were people that had worked in business operations. Um, they'd done a load of stuff with uh, you know Excel spreadsheets and so on. Uh, they'd gone from Excel spreadsheets to um, dabbling in VBA. And some of them found their way on, onto the IT side. Um, I inherited a team where I think about half half the team were people that had, that had come through that kind of um, progression. Uh, a couple of people have been brought in specifically with some Unixy type background, uh, some Python programming uh, background, and so on. Um, we knew we wanted to get away from being a business that was built entirely on Excel. It had got to um, you know, amazing as Excel is, um, you know, it, uh, it, it, it doesn't scale very well. It does, it's not very auditable. And, um, you know, when you're trying to run a, a business fit for, you know, fit to be sold uh, uh, on the basis of its technology, and that technology is all in Excel spreadsheets, you know, you've got, you've, you've got to do something about that. So we, um, we made sure a lot more, uh, you know, we basically invested in, in as, as the saying goes, you know, in, in protocols and formats, you know, it was all, all web-based, all, um, you know, 
protocol-based communication. Excel could, could easily get data from servers and, and so on. The Excel didn't go away, but the hard work was done, you know, done in a more auditable way with with servers and databases and all that kind of stuff. And was there um, something special about the fact that these guys had come from operations or other areas of business into the development team that, that made a difference? Oh, definitely. Um, it's it's the kind of domain where the tech, the technology side wasn't amazingly challenging, you know, at least not to experienced developers. Um, but the um, the business side of it certainly was. Um, you know, energy risk management is a very you know that's a niche thing. Um, any energy products are quite interesting. Anything they're quite different to uh, the kind of products I've seen in financial on the financial side. Um, they they sound similar, but then then they just have nuances that uh, that, that you're not used to. I mean, um, I don't know if you know anything about bond trading, but with bond trading, it's all about calendars and uh, you know when the when the cash flow on what uh, what day of the month is the cash flow going to fall and how you adjust for weekends and month ends and stuff like that. Um, gas uh, energy products have all those same kind of things, but uh, then you start to get into seasons like summer and winter and. Uh, Half years that uh, that work from summer to summer, rather than you know, years that work from summer to summer, and all sorts of strange things like that. Um, the interrelationships between the energy markets um, is uh, you know it's obvious when you think about it, but uh, you know le- electricity, gas, oil, um, you know they they, they, uh, they there is some important correlations between them. Um, seasonality is a very very big um, very big thing. Um, so when you're in, yeah. Sorry. Uh, so so you know there's there's just a whole there's some intricacies and that you need to understand, um, and all financial products depend on all parties involved knowing what the conventions are, um, and however crazy those conventions seem to be seem to, to be to you as a programmer, um, you have to you have to deal with it. Uh, so having uh, people with business experience actually in your teams is brilliant. Uh, we, and we had a, it, it was kind of, there was never, a, not too, well, I can say completely excluded, but you, instead of just sort of, we're the technology team and they're the user team, there was much more of a spectrum where we had ex-business people in the team. Uh, we had people between IT and the business who who had also had a foot in both camps. Um, I had a strong financial background, having worked in investment banking for you know for more than a decade. Um, so uh, and uh, so the uh, you know the sort of history of the people in the team and the history of the organisation uh, was interesting and part of its success. And you could say that just about any really any any successful uh, team and and organization and um, you know you look to see what's um, you know even when it has problems and it clearly had problems when I arrived you also have to give full respect to the things that are working and the context and uh, all, all these other things and um, start with what you do now as the uh, the Kanban principle goes right and I see that a lot in organizations that one of the biggest inhibitors to productivity and effectiveness is that you end up with the technical guys on one side of a boundary and, and the business people on the other. And it sounds like you kind of inherited a team which didn't have that problem to start with. It was certainly a lot blurrier than, than, than it was. Um, and in a company small enough, um, you know, the, the whole company was smaller than the department that I used to run. Um, everybody knew everybody pretty much. Um, it means it's very hard to stop 
you know, people asking for favours and all this kind of thing, you know, and and, and so on. So the distraction rate was was quite high, uh, which is, I guess, a disbenefit of that level of um, openness. Um, but it's also also part of its success as well. And uh, you you know you you learn to um, you know respect what's working and and, and nurture that and uh, just encourage it in a direction that um, enables business goals to be delivered as well. Right. And and going back to this this business about it's easy for us to say yes. It's it's hard for us to say no. Um, yes. And so you've got this the. You've got some great ingredients in the team. You've applied these tools. You're using your authority. Yeah. Are there specific levers that you pull around this whip problem? You know that that you can recall. Um, we um, we did use uh, explicit uh, work in progress limits. Um, they um, there, there were things that we experimented with. Um, one very exciting experiment with, with, was with pairing. Um, by the time pairing became fashionable, um, I was already no longer paid to be a programmer. And I had never experienced pair programming. And I don't like to, uh, well, I don't like mandating things in general, but I certainly wasn't going to mandate a practice I hadn't experienced myself. Um, but there were members of the team that were up for trying it as an experiment. And it was an experiment that was far more successful than I think any of us would have um, predicted. Uh, we had some stable pairings. We tried, um, uh, you know, rotating pairings and all the rest of it. Uh, and what we found, we very quickly got to a point where we had less work in progress than we had people in the team. Um, so this is 2009, 2010 sort of time. Uh, and I've since worked with teams where that's a situation we've got to, you know, not straight away, but, you know, as, as things settle down, um, as we get into the rit- rhythm of, of, of delivery, um, I, I found, um, you know, quite apart from whatever explicit mechanisms we might have for controlling work in progress, you know, whether it be, you know, column limits or, um, you know, sprint, um, sprint plans, whatever. Um, that um, teams have got very good at focusing on the particular pieces of work that they have in progress, working collaboratively to to, to get them done. And um, why is it that pairing had that effect? Do you think? Um, I I think one possible reason. I, one one of the reasons for whip growing uh, is one I mentioned before. It's very easy when you get stuck on something to think, oh, "Okay, I'll just put that to one side and start something else." I think when you're pairing, you're much more likely to have a conversation about how we're actually going to address that problem, and it kind of encourages a behaviour that you'd want, whether people are pairing or not. You, when when someone's got a problem, you want them to put your put their hands up and say, "No, I need help." Um, and not hold on to that, that that obstacle until the next stand-up meeting or whatever the next formal opportunity is to there is to to share. Um, when you're um, pairing or mobbing or anything like that, you know if you have a a problem in front of you, it's very natural to have a conversation about that problem and think about what you might do to solve it. And if you find that you can't solve it yourselves, I think you're probably more inclined to ask a third person in who you think might be able to solve the problem and so on. Because you, you've already got over the barrier of, um, you know, 
talking about the problem and, you know, um, in, a, in a way, you know, so you're out of one person mode already into, into, a, into a collaboration mode. So it, it just helps. It just naturally, you're, you are practicing some helpful behaviors without, without realizing it, without it being, without being told to, it's just a natural part of the setup. Yeah, I can say I can sense that actually. It's much easier for a pair to decide, oh, let's go ask somebody else to help us than for an individual to take on that vulnerability of I'm stuck and you help. Yeah. And you mentioned so pairing, and for those who aren't familiar with those terms, pairing is when you know two two people, one one screen, uh, working on a product product a problem together, a programming yes. problem. What's what's mobbing for people who may not be familiar? So um, mobbing is where um, the team as a whole, or at least a significant number of people, a number of people more than two, uh, spend some time uh, working on working on something together. And um, it's now you know a fairly well-established thing, and there are some sort of norms for, for how to run it. You know, the, the, there's, there's somebody at the keyboard um, there is the uh, you know someone sort of navigating. The sort of a good metaphor is like like rally driving. Um, you know, there's someone or maybe maybe driving in the uh, in the uh, you know on safari or something like that. You know, you've got someone driving, someone navigating. Uh, you've got uh, people keeping lookout. Um, people uh, right. people solving problems. It's a very a very intense conversational um, experience, um, and. What you're doing is bringing the kind of behaviours that you would see when you are facing a really serious and urgent challenge, like a production problem, for example. And you're bringing that kind of way of working into the development environment. Um, it's one of these things that's not for everybody, and for, maybe even for, for most people, not all the time. Um, but as a uh, as a way of either getting over a significant hurdle or for just creating you know some shared knowledge or even just some, just some buzz um you know it's 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 a way way of achieving that you know, something you know a, a, another tool to have in the in the kit bag right okay so so you're back and forth to be the first you don't realize it but this is going to become the case study for your first book um and then talk us yeah. And, and did you write your first book while still having a day job? Is uh, no, I I, uh, I had um, I'd finished the, uh, the the CTO job. Um, I went full on into the Kanban community at that time. Uh, I did some work on and off with David Anderson. I mean, the first thing I did um, after leaving uh, the CTO job. Uh, was to do some consultancy, um, you know, flying under David's flag um, at a bank in South Africa, and it was and really David Anderson for people who aren't aware. He's a, a major figure in the in the lean community. His book came out two thousand and eleven. Uh, mine came out two thousand and fourteen. Um, so we we worked together on and on. I was flying under his flag when I went to South Africa, worked for a very different kind of organization. Um, I, I, to some horror, um, you know, the people I was working with realized um, that there were people there who, you know, got to their mid-twenties and never seen a, a project actually completed. You know, <laughs> you know many, not just months, but, but years, you know, to finish a project. Um, 
I was told by somebody that they knew what they would be doing a year and a half from now because it was on the project plan. And my reaction to that was almost, almost physically sick. I was thinking, you know, if someone told me what I would be doing a year, you know, had a, had, a, had a task for me a year and a half from now, I would feel insulted. You know, that was, that was my honest reaction to it. You know, we're on a journey, we're all growing, and the idea that you're going to tell me what I'm going to be doing a year and a half from now, I'm sorry, but that's not how I, not how I roll. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, um, yeah, so that when I talked at the beginning, um, you know, about uh, humane and inhumane systems, I, you know, I, I honestly, to me, that is inhumane. You know, the idea that we're going to nail down what everyone's going to be doing for the next next couple of years is just ridiculous. Um, and uh, certainly a long, long, long way away from, you know, the kind of, um, you know, what we know now about how, how, how particularly software products should, should be written, um, highly collaborative, uh, a, you know, important degree of experimentation in it and so on. Um, we all know how painful large projects are to um, to deploy. If you if you save up all that pain for the end, then it's going to be very painful. Um, if you learn to do these things early and often, um, then it just becomes part of the way that you work. Um, you know, these lessons have been learned again and again and again over over recent decades, um, and actually they were known long before waterfall became a thing. Uh, so one of the ironies is that uh, waterfall was just a mistake. Um, when I was, I was reading an article, I, you know, I'm quite familiar with the history of waterfall. Don't tell that to the Prince guys, right? Well, um, you know, it's probably the DOD that we have to thank for it, DOD 2167. Um, you know, their standard for how software should be delivered. And they read the first half of a paper um, which described waterfall as a way of not doing it. And they ignored the part where they said, um, well, actually, most software gets written iteratively and incrementally and, uh, you know, with a, with a large amount of experimentation. We can never fully specify a software system up front. The specification will be as complicated as the software itself, so don't even try. Um, you know, it's, 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 you know, you lead to a proof by contradiction if you, if you, if you, uh, if you, if you think it through. Um, so unfortunately, uh, we were told, you know, through the 70s and 80s that, um, or through the 80s at least, I don't really remember, I, I'm old enough to just to remember the 70s and I wasn't working then. Um, you know, we were told that was doing it properly. And, you know, we, we are what we're going through, we're still at the end of um, repaying that, you know, two generations or at least a generation of managers were told that Waterfall was doing it properly. And um, many of them still believe it, and there's still an industry supporting that worldview, uh, and that's what we're up against. Um, and I'm now very deliberate about not saying anything that um, comes from that worldview, supports that worldview, and so on. Um, and in my and I'm making that increasingly explicit. Um, so that's what the that's what the next book will be about. In fact, you know, it's. Um, Going away from agile being about you know um, different levels of backlog and planning and activities and so on, um, which might be agile but might also be just a reincarnation of that old waterfall way of thinking, um, and instead you know retell agile but from in terms of uh, outcomes, objectives, goals, you know all, all those kind of things, and working backwards from uh, business outcomes, needs being met. Um, uh, those kinds of things. So, uh, 
you know, they're called right to left. You know, it's just about you know starting on the right with the uh, with the outcome and um, understanding that everything that we do leads up to those, those outcomes. Um, it's a and I, and I just refuse now to describe agile or agile processes in ways that that start on the left with uh, you know with, with backlogs and so on. It's um, we are we are still pandering to that old way of thinking, and, and I, I feel that we're just drawing agile with a sort of steady drip, drip, drip of accepting the old way of describing things and the old way of thinking, and uh, forgetting that agile was actually a radical departure. Uh, it ought to be a paradigm shift, um, but we're in danger of just falling back into um, those old ways of talking and thinking, and I, I'm making a deliberate effort to you know, refrain from that. Right. And it starts with starting with the end in mind, which actually is one of the things you open uh, agenda was, shift with, right? Exactly. So the very, that was the very opening sentence of, of agenda shift was, uh, yeah, begin with the end in mind. Um, Stephen, one of Stephen Covey's um, uh, principles. Um, and uh, you, know, you might have seen my definition of done as well. You know, someone's need, someone's need was met. It's my definition of done. I mean, it's, it's a d- deliberately annoying, subversive um, statement. Um, it doesn't necessarily hold up to intense scrutiny, but I'm, I'm making a point, and most people get that. It's quite funny, the reaction on LinkedIn. I got, I got um, something like, uh, you know, it was uh, the number of, sort of likes and comments on when I first published that was, you know, into three figures. And, you know, so it was enough to actually say, you know, 95% of the reaction was positive. And there's this five percent of people that are really annoyed that I've subverted a cherished agile uh, concept of the definition of done. Um, but I think most people realised that was make, making an important point that uh, you know if you think that done is co-complete, then um, you are totally and utterly missing the point. Or co-shipped or whatever. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Someone's need got met. I like that. And uh, what it, this also challenges. So we had. I don't know if you were a Finn Golding who's written. Um, co-written a couple of books around flow he's the international CTO at Aviva but one of the things he talks about is this idea of possibility oriented conversations as being key in in the whole process of establishing flow in organizations and this sounds similar right start with the outcome start with the end in mind start with the possibility Yes, I mean, so, I mean, perhaps now is a good time to talk about agenda shift then so agenda yeah. shift is like right to left for organizational change um, although agenda shift happens to be the book that came book that came first, it's outcome oriented change, um, and it kind of, it kind of works a little bit from both from both directions. But uh, an important thing to establish is some ambition uh, and you know some idea of the outcomes that you want to achieve, what you need to achieve as an organisation, what you want to achieve as a team, um, some picture of uh, what it will feel like um, when it's working well as a team. Um, so that's begin with the end in mind, uh, but also start with what you do now. Um, it sounds like a contradiction, um, but all we're saying is, you know, begin with the end in mind is about the, the outcomes that we want to achieve. Start with what you do now is about our present reality. And then you look for what some people call the adjacent possible. Um, you know, where are the opportunities? Um, what are the obstacles that we need to overcome? Uh, what are the outcomes behind those obstacles? Um, what are the outcomes behind those outcomes, and so on? And actually, what you're doing is mapping out a mapping out a landscape of obstacles and outcomes, um, rather than of specific actions or specific practices. 
and that allows you to have you know just in time conversations about the actual solutions that we might want to try or the actual experiments that we want to try um so you could call it a lean thing of um you know just in time or agile last responsible moment in terms of coming to the detail um but it's uh but at the same time, it's not just about you know looking only at our feet and shuffling forwards, um, you know, in a, in a particular direction. You know, we 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 need a bit of ambition as well, understanding what it is we want to achieve. Um, and you know, it's not enough just to you know. I, I don't want to criticise continuous improvement because it's one of those things that's so so fundamentally important. But some some people seem to take continuous improvement as meaning that we uh, continuous in the mathematical sense that we only make infinitesimally small changes and we never do anything uh, risky or ambitious. Um, and you know that's not right either. Um, and. The key to unlocking it is is agreement, which is one of the, you know going back to the Kanban thing. You know that was one of the values of my values model for Kanban that, that became the basis of the book. Um, you got agreement and outcomes, then suddenly everything is possible. Now we're all now we all want this, and now we're all pulling in the right in the same direction. Now it's just a matter of how we, how are we going to achieve this thing that we all want to achieve. Um, so a significant and that's part. the right way round, isn't it? It's start with the possibility and then ask the question of how. And so often you find in these sort of agile transformation engagements, you start with the how, and it's like yes, yes. So I find I'm never selling practices now. I'm facilitating a process where I help people to agree on what it is they want to achieve, mm. uh, and then we can work together on achieving it. And if they can do that themselves, fantastic. If they need some help achieving it, well, I'm happy to give it. You know, either way, either way, you know, as the saying saying goes, when when they get when they've done it, they can say that they did it themselves. Um, you know, and that's uh, that's, uh, that's the art of war, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's uh, you know several several uh, hundred years, if not a couple of thousand years, of um, you know, leadership thinking in a, in a nutshell. There, in a way, um, yeah. So I, I think um, as I said, I said in writing a few a few times this year. Um, you know, I'm I'm 53. Um, and we are devoted to outcomes one way or another. You know, we're an industry dominated by solutions rather than outcomes. And that's true on the uh, on the agile side as much as it is on the technology side. You know, um, you know, we are so into our frameworks. For example, um, I'm not anti framework, but I'm anti, I'm anti the imposition of frameworks. Um, you know, if we can agree what it is we want to achieve and then use the frameworks as a reference, as a source of inspiration, as a source of solutions, um, fantastic. Um, but the idea of, you know, following a linear left to right plan as a way of imposing a framework on people, that's, that's anathema to me. I, I won't have any part of that. Mm. And what have you learned along the way then of helping people get clear on their outcomes? What, what have you found to have worked? Um, well, I've developed some tools to help with that. So, um, you know, agility shift comes in five parts, but the first two parts of those, um, discovery and exploration, are all focused on helping groups of people, you know, arrive on a set of outcomes that they want to achieve. Um, and one of these happy accidents, I stumbled across uh, clean language as I was developing this stuff. So the, the basic history of agenda shift is... Um, at the end of Kanban from the inside, which is a values-based treatment of, of Kanban, 
Um, there's a, uh, a kind of a checklist at the back, organised, I think, organised by value. Um, it's, just a while, it's a little while since I've actually read my own book. Um, but there was a, like a lot of books finish with a, a checklist or a bullet list. And um, I, and actually, interestingly, a number of people independently realised that that set of bullets at the back of the book was potentially the basis of an interesting assessment tool, uh, you know, at least a checklist. Um, and I, uh, I was one of those people, perhaps unsurprisingly, um, but uh, the, what we actually have now in this assessment tool is radically different to what was in the back of the book. Um, we clearly had to do something so that it was standalone from the book. So, you know, you, you, each, each, each prompt, you know, now stands alone. You don't have to read the whole book to understand it. Um, and that took us in an interesting direction. It turned out that the more we removed uh, jargon from the assessment, the more um, digestible it was for people, um, that the more willing people were to try it. And... Um, I did a number of iterations with um, Dragan Chodjic, who, who, who I think you know. Um, and uh, between the two of us, we developed a style where um, every prompt was uh, written in the present tense, you know, described, not described as something impossibly aspirational, but something that actually I can, I, I can see how this might work. And non-prescriptive, um, it said nothing about Kanban, said nothing about Scrum, nothing about, you know, no, no it, it didn't. Every prompt could be implemented, interpreted and implemented in a number of different ways. Um, inclusive as well. Um, every prompt starts with we, or nearly every prompt starts with the word we, um, and the few that don't tend to start with the word our, uh, and so on. Um, so we developed this house style of these inclusive, non-prescriptive style of assessment, um, and... Uh, used it in a variety of contexts, used it with people outside of IT, interestingly as well. Um, that and forced what are you, what are you uh, assessing? What are you, what's the intent here? Well, the, the intent is to, to, to discover, well, the, the, the goal is to discover what opportunities are there to improve your delivery process. Um, and the assessment tool is organised according to six of the nine values from my book. So uh, transparency, balance, collaboration, customer focus, flow and leadership with a, you know, a half a dozen or so um, prompts and under each of those. Um, and, uh, you know, part of, part of Dragon's con uh, contribution was to make sure that it, that it went beyond what was you know, written in my book, you know, had good broad coverage of the, the lean and agile um, landscape. The, uh, people, people use the assessment, they score every prompt on a scale of one to four. Um, but the scoring process is just to force them to think about how this is actually working in their organisations now. Um, it's not because we are actually trying to measure, measure the organisation. Um, and the, process, the workshop process is to prioritise the assessment and just identify, you know, what are the top three or top five prompts of the 43 uh, that represent the areas of greatest opportunity. Um, and that basically was it when I started, you know, three, two, three years ago now. Um, but we've... Um, through in incorporation of things like clean language and there's, a, you know, things we've learned from Kenevan as well. Um, we've 
Turn that into just, just, just wow. pause there because there may be a few people who are like, clean language, could have it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's, should, we, should we unpack that a bit and for people? Well, I'll, unpack, I'll unpack that a bit. So um, I mentioned obstacles and obstacles and outcomes. Um, and so what we've, we've, uh, we've turned into a game, uh, a, a coaching tool called, called Clean Language, um, which is a, um, it's come from the, its history is it's come, like a lot of things in coaching, it's come from the therapeutic world, um, psychotherapy, and has been adopted by uh, some parts of the, uh, the coaching community. Um, now, I, I don't use it in a therapeutic sort of way. I'm very clear that I'm not a therapist. Um, but I saw that a, a, a certain subset of the clean questions, and the clean questions are very interesting. They are questions that force the asker of the questions to minimize the assumptions that they are making um, and encourages, encourages them to ask questions out of genuine curiosity rather than in a way that is leading the witness to a particular kind of answer. And, and the kind of questions they just can't... Well, there is some skill in choosing what questions to ask, but you can't lead the question. You can't lead the witness in the way that you would with Socratic questions, um, for example. Um, so we start with obstacles, um, and it might just be, you know, our stand-up meetings are rubbish or something. That, that's a um, you know, that, that's an obstacle. And then you just ask the question: well, What would you like to have happen? And um, and you know, I'd like stand-up meetings that, that where people it doesn't people don't feel that it's wasting their time. You know, where we're having productive conversations and so on. And you've gone from obstacle mode to outcome mode straight away. And you can then ask very simple questions. So when we have these better stand-up meetings, then what happens? And you've and, and what's interesting there is you've gone from ad, ad, obstacle to outcome without any talk about solutions. So that sounds to me like discipline. Yes. Well, so the game the game's called Fifteen Minute Photo, and the photo stands for from obstacles to outcomes. Um, the, the, the the two main questions are what would you like to have happened, and then what happened. So you're going from out, obstacle to outcome, and then outcome to more outcomes, and you can go more distant outcomes, more abstract outcomes, um, and so on. There are there are other questions that we ask as well. You know, what kind of I love I love the what kind of question. Um, you know, it's it's a much nicer way of saying you know, of asking, can you be more specific? You know, that's a good example of this. Um, if you told me you were going on holiday next week, I could ask what kind of holiday rather than where are you going? You know, if I say where are you going, I'm already making an assumption that you're going to travel somewhere. And if I uh, and then you and you say, well, actually, I'm not going. I'm just staying at home. And you sound a bit embarrassed about it. If I say what kind of holiday, and you say, oh, I'm going to be redecorating my house, and that's okay. That's 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 fine. <laughs> so um, that's just that's it's just a, an, it's an invitation for me to explore rather than describe. Exactly. Um, and um, and in the end, the the, the wording is important in the sense that people have practiced these questions and they know that they, they work. But actually, what's much more important is the, the intention. And, and you, just by practicing them, you learn to um, what it's like to ask genuine questions out of curiosity and without knowing the answer, as opposed to the kind of lo leading and loaded questions that we tend to ask. Um, and when you when you when you've done it a few times, then when you ask do ask a leading question, you uh, suddenly hit, hit you know sort of see a little red light go off in your brain, um, <laughs> and uh, 
Yeah, and it's 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 really helpful. And um, you know, I tell people, you know, um, it would be weird if you were to use these questions all the time. And it's important to understand, you know, the contract you have with the people that you're working with um, before you do it too overtly. But you don't need to ask anyone's permission to be curious. You don't need to ask anyone's permission to ask questions that are, you know, stripped of assumption and, and so on. And so it's good to practice these things. And it's important as managers, for example, to be able to talk in terms of outcomes, explore outcomes. If you, um, you know, you're a manager and your organization is going agile and, and, you know, you've been used to telling people what to do and people are used to being told what to do. And now you're being told now your teams need to be self-organizing. Uh, you know, where do you start? Um, but actually, you know, self-organization. Self-organization is easy when people have a clear goal um, to organize around. So if you've got the tools to explore goals with people, um, that's a really useful tool to have in as, as a manager, let alone as a, as a coach. Um, so, so I find that you know, teaching these ideas inside organizations is, has very obvious business benefit. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not going in as a therapist. I'm going in to help uncover or help organize people, teams of people together, groups of people together to articulate things that perhaps haven't been well enough articulated before. Help and just to, yeah. And I can really see that. So I can see the clean language is, a, is an exploration and helps you get to outcomes. And I can see that the assessment helps people think in different ways. And we've got into this a little bit before, but is there a danger that the assessment comes with a a set of biases and in a sense is leading in itself and 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 may risk closing down the exploration by having that formatted set of prompts um we'll go back to you know what's your contract again you know i'm generally brought into places because um i'm known to have a you know agile track record a lean, a lean Kanban track record and so on. And, you know, the organizations that hire me generally, generally would like more of that. If they want an anthropological study of the organization, then they should hire an anthropologist. <laughs> you know? um, but the assessment is as, you know, they're, 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 you know would, would you call tra is transparency? Transparency is a bias, you could say. You know, um, balance is a bias. Um, you know, we, we know that these things help in particular ways. And when you help organizations to be more transparent, to get a better balance between demand and capacity, when you help people to collaborate and so on, you know, we tend to know how these things tend to work. Um, but that's why people hire us. And I don't think we should be embarrassed about that. You know, we don't start from pr first principles every time. Um, you know, uh, so that's context. Context, as always, is, is everything. Um, I'm hired with that particular end in mind, and I'm uh, I've got an assessment that I'm you know I, I, that I'm proud of. I'm, I'm I'm very happy to work out a way of doing it in a way that doesn't prescribe practices, so I can uh, be true to my own you know personal values in terms of you know, being against imposition. Um, and you know, force force feeding stuff to to people doesn't work. Um, it disengages people rather than engages people. Like, you know, I want you know if if I'm if I want to build or help build um, 
humane systems inside organizations i need to act appropriately myself you know and uh, so that's what i've done so the way i'm actually interpreting that is is it something like we find that having clusters of conversations around these themes tends to serve a a goal of improving delivery you know is it, yes. is it something like that right um yes. and this will help you yeah, I'll give you a, I mean, a concrete example of that. Um, private workshop um, six weeks ago. And uh, I had the room divided into three table groups. And all three table groups honed in on uh, the imbalance between workload and capacity as being the most serious issue for them as a department, perhaps as an organisation, certainly as a department. That was very, very consistent. Um, and uh, different organisations have different needs, different obstacles that they need to overcome. But for them, that was the one big thing. And they they completely bought themselves into that and their own particular ideas for addressing that problem. And, and the funny thing is, in that situation, is that they are able to suggest to each other more extreme solutions than I would dare propose uh, myself, and, and that's great. And I had similar experiences in Hungary as well. Like, like, like I said, um, you know, uh, the team were quite happy to impose pairing on themselves. I was not willing to impose that on them. Um, and uh, so agreement on, on, the, on the obstacles that we're facing, agreement on the outcomes that we want to achieve is a very powerful thing, and, and, and I don't underestimate it. Every organization picks on the same things quite often. I think probably the most common um, prompt that gets chosen as the, or, or prompts that get chosen actually around customer collaboration rather than around um, uh, the balance stuff. Um, there are, you know, 20 years of Agile hasn't solved the customer collaboration problem. There's still a long, long way to go in that. Um, some of the prompts in the assessment talk about needs and exploring them. They talk about owning, owning work until we've established that the need has been satisfied. Um, and uh, that sort of holds end-to-end from discovery and research through to not just delivery, but validation, you know, um, most organizations still have some way to go in getting that end-to-end holistic you know, approach to needs and, and outcomes. And uh, so many organizations home in on those actually as being areas ripe for improvement. And I'm very happy to, to see that. The, um, the customer focus category in the assessment is generally the one that comes out the weakest, which might come as a surprise, you know, when we think of how long, you know, Agile has been talking about customer collaboration as being a key, a key value. Um, but we have a long way to go, but there are some great, there's great work being done out there in areas like user research and discovery and prototyping and validation and so on and so on. Um, you know, we've made a lot of progress in those areas in the time since the manifesto was written. Right. And uh, and since you know many of the, the famous frameworks were were developed, um, so I'm I you know quite a lot of my work is amplifying some of those things. You know, I've been a supporter of um, government digital digital services in the UK, which has made a strategic play of uh, needs. 
Um, I'm talking outcomes all the time. Um, you know, we do a lot with um, validation, uh, lean startup, hypothesis-based approaches to to to, to uh, both change and product development, and the same tools work very well in both both spaces and so on. Um, any, surpri- any surprises for you in terms of the all because you've done a number of these assessments now, right? What, is there any and, and and also you know those within your network? Uh, yeah, any surprises? Um. I think to start with, it did come as a surprise that customer focus was quite consistently an area, a problem area. Um, and another surprise was that the uh, the leadership category quite often comes out top. And uh, I think maybe the questions are too easy to answer. I, I you know, I, I'm careful not to put it like this when I'm a pri- when I'm on a private gig. But you know, when I'm doing a public workshop or something, I'll make a wry comment about you know, it's great to see all this leadership being put to such good use. You know, <laughs> you know, when uh, customer focus is uh, you know looking looking rather embarrassing. Um, so uh, you know, there's I mean I. I I think the leadership area is actually an area for some future development as well. I've been actively exploring um, with, you know, in collaboration with with some other people, um, possible relationship between agenda shift and viable systems model. You know, which is probably the best model we've got for you know how organisations survive and thrive, um, and uh, from a change management got a part of the organization that's changing quickly because you're deliberately encouraging change to happen you know, through an agile transformation or whatever it might be. Um, is it just continue, going to continue to have a healthy relationship with the rest of the organization? And I don't think it's safe to take that for granted. And I would like to make that more explicit and think about how do we encourage both sides of that boundary, the transformation boundary, to thrive. Um, for the conversations between the two sides to be you know, not just respectful at a human level, um, but effective at a, um, you know, at, a, at a corporate level as well. Um, so that's an area for some active research for me you know, um, over the next few months. And for people who, I mean, I'm, I've heard it in passing, that, 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 that set of ideas before the viable systems model, just as a few headlines of what that's but, uh, about. It's a brief background. So um, we're sort of going back to, uh, like a lot, a lot of good things seem to come from the 70s, um, uh, you know, servant leadership. Not just, the, not just yeah. the flares. Yeah, uh, not just the flares. Um, I do, I'm old enough to remember flares. Um, so we're talking about um, management cybernetics. Um, so, uh, so it's a sort of branch of um, systems thinking and uh, and so on, um, and uh, it's a lot of it's based on the work of Stafford Beer, and you know he he did a study of um, put together a model of um, for any viable organisation, and this applies to the whole organisation, but also to teams within the organisation. Uh, what elements need to be present? Um, and there are elements like uh, you need some ideas of where you're going. You know, there needs to be some strategy. Uh, there needs to be some development. You know, you, you need to make sure that your um, your organisation, your team, uh, remains fit for purpose as the environment changes, as the as the as the challenges that your organisation faces uh, change over time. You, you need to, you actually do need to deliver stuff. 
you know, um, you need a clear sense of purpose guiding that delivery. Uh, you need um, monitoring to make sure that, um, you know, what you think you are delivering is what you actually are delivering, that, uh, um, you know, that, that it's you know, performant and effective enough. And, and so on and so on. It's a nicely recursive model. You know, it works at the whole organization level and, and levels below. And the bit of most interest to me isn't just what are the bits that you need to create. A, you know, I've, I've managed large departments, for example, you know, and, and I can understand vital system model from that point of view. But how those sort of whole part relationship works, how my department faces off to, you know, the people above me, how the different parts of my department, you know, I've managed a global department, so, you know, I've experienced this, but how, how they how they interact with each other um, is interesting and, and important. Um, and that's hard enough when the organisation is stable, you know, when you're deliberately changing it as well. Um, you know, you don't want the, uh, you know, the, the medicine to be worse than the, than the disease. Um, and uh, so I'm, I, I think, you know, we would, Learn something from paying attention to that stuff. So I'm, um, you know, glad to found a, found a group of people interested in um, in some of the same things. And you talked about linking that specifically to the leadership space. Is that right? Yeah. Well, at least in the sense that I, you know, perhaps the leadership prompts are a little bit too easy to answer strongly, and it includes things that that you'd you'd absolutely want to be answered strongly so you know one one of the prompts that consistently gets a strong answer is you know basically boils down to we treat each other with respect you know regardless of role and responsibility you know regardless of role and level of seniority and so on and um you'd be disappointed if that didn't get a high score and maybe you'd be embarrassed to give a, a, a low score even if perhaps a low score was deserved as well um so perhaps it's not surprising, you know, with, with questions like that, it's perhaps not surprising that it, that it comes out high. Um, but I'm wondering now whether um, we should ask some questions that um, ask some tough questions about organisational design um, and using the, uh, the viable system model as a, you know, perhaps a way of identifying um, possibly some gaps in our model. Um, Reconciling different models is always a good exercise, you know, it's where you find find gaps, you know, one model to a tune of another, smashing things together, all, all sort of different techniques for, uh, they're, they're, these are innovation techniques that we're applying to our own stuff, you know, what we're doing. Right, right. Okay, and, and that is, is that likely to be a theme in, in the next book as well, the right, right to left? Yes, definitely. So um, there are, you know, the early chapters are, you know, some basic stuff about lean and agile, but both of those from a very much my right to left um, perspective. So your right to left for lean is actually very, um, is very natural. And principle number one for lean is start with value as, you know, created in the eyes of the customer. And really we're working backwards from that. Do the same for agile. Um, so a nice sort of right to left description of agile is uh, people collaborating over working software that is already beginning to meet needs. Now that describes an agile team already underway, uh, and if you're not there already, then you want to be moving to that pretty quickly. You know, and if you're not trying to get to that pretty quickly, then you know begin to question how agile it is. Um, and I can also see that that would translate to other knowledge work, actually, and other knowledge artefacts, right? Oh, absolutely, yes, absolutely, yes. Um, 
Then uh, a chapter, you know, describing you know the important frameworks at the, you know, the not not at the scaled framework level, but uh, things like uh, Kanban, uh, Kanban, Scrum, design thinking, DevOps, um, XP, that that kind of uh, level of thing, um, and introducing those really as not competing frameworks, but patterns to be combined. So saying something about the goals of each, the philosophies of each. And how they complement each other. Um, uh, so that's that's the third chapter. The fourth chapter, we, we do get to scaling, and it's very hard. I think it'd be wrong to address scaling without also, you know, being open to perhaps an audience that's not familiar with it. That um, it's a contentious subject. Um, but at the same time, I want to be fair and generous to you know each body of knowledge as well um, and um, the kind of line that I'm taking is uh, I'm very happy to see you know even the scaling frameworks as reference models um, but the choice of framework actually in the end matters a lot less than how you choose to implement it um, I think the uh, a, a left to right implementation imposition of a framework over people's resistance to them is an inhumane act unlikely to not end well um, imposing things on imposing process and practice on people tends to disengage them um, and that's not a good outcome for anybody and it's particularly ironic when you're trying to encourage agile and collaboration and all those all those other things um, so I will talk about engagement models um, which is also of course an excuse to talk about agenda shift as well agenda shift being you know really an engagement model um, but also a chance to finish with Stuff about you know bigger picture organizational themes and 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 introducing viable systems model. Um, there's a chapter on um, strategy and um, control, uh, and uh, the outside in model is the way I'm approaching those. So starting with the customer and working our way into the core of the organization and kind of exposing the contradictions between the different layers as we as we do it. Uh, as so one model for for strategy workshops that I'm I'm, I'm doing now, um, but also the outside in service delivery review um, and find that same idea uh, to how we we look at our um, organisational performance. Uh, starting with the customer cost, customer measures of satisfaction, um, the the narrative stuff that we're hearing from the help desk and and all that kind of stuff. And working our way in through different layers, you know, product and platform, and uh, and so on. Mm. Um, not looking for one metric to chase, but looking for a multi-dimensional view of how we're doing and, and what we need to do, um, and an opportunity also to look at the experiments that we're running as well. Um, and you know, a as a bit of bit of deliberate organisational design, you know, if we are regularly reviewing progress on our experiments and then we're creating the expectation that they are happening and that we are changing and adapting as an organization um, yeah. i actually liked one of your recent blog posts on that and being explicit about where uh, uh, an experiment had been rejected right yes, yes. actually having that public yes great opportunity for learning and um you learn just you, you learn all you learn at two levels um you learn at the level of oh okay we thought this about the customer or we thought this about the organization it turned out not to be true and that's something we've learned 
but also um, our process of learning that. Was that a long, painful and expensive process or um, was the design of our experiment such that we, um, we invalidated our assumptions quickly and cheaply? Um, and if you learn to invalidate assumptions quickly and cheaply, um, you, you learn to make very rapid pro progress. Mm. Uh, the last chapter is called Upside Down. Um, so that's a um, inverting the pyramid, servant leadership, um, those kind of things. So again, sort of um, starting at the bottom with, uh, or at the top, depending which way, you have, which way your pyramid is, but start, starting with delivery, then think going to, moving to organizational themes. Um, in terms of strategy and um, uh, monitoring, and then finishing with um, sort of uh, more um, leadership aspects. Um, so that, that's whether it's right to left, outside in, or upside down. You know, it's, it's putting the customer at the beginning of our conversation each time. Right, and and as you're describing this, what's struck I'm so struck by is is your drive in all of this. You know, this is the third book. There's the the framework. There's yeah. a network of, of of other facilitators that you train and and and, and nurture. Yeah, what what's what's in this for Mike? What's driving you through this? Um. Someone asked me, who was it? I think it was a mutual friend of ours again. Uh, Ray Edgar asked me, um, you know, why did you write um, Cameraman from the Inside? And I said, I, I had to. <laughs> um, and, he, and, he, and he said he was very relieved at the answer. You know, I, wasn't, I, I didn't uh, just write the book because someone asked me to write a book. Um, I wrote some. I wrote a values-based treatment of something that already existed. It was a new treatment of something that um, that the, the insiders knew. They kind of had a gut feeling. They they thought about it the same way that I did, but the external view of it was one of you know this is just a bunch of tool heads, you know, who, who just love love their tools, and getting to the the values and the philosophy of any framework is a really important way of understanding it, you know. And uh, coming from the Kanban side, and I came to understand the you know the values and philosophy of of, of Scrum and, and other frameworks. Then I you know I learned to Pay them a lot more respect, and that became my how I've even in that Kanban book. You know, I, I approached other bodies of knowledge in the same way, and I've kind of continued in that in that that same vein. From values to outcomes was a very very easy leap, and um, the Agenda Shift book was a way of addressing the problem of change management in an outcome oriented way. Um, the, there's a bit of family circumstance to it as well. Um, I spent best part of two years hardly leaving leaving home because of a you know a, a, a sick child in the family, very sick child in the family. Um, I wrote um, a lot of the book in Florence's bedroom, and you know when it was still dark outside, um, I'm you know we had without going wanting to go into too much detail, you know she was on a ventilator. Um, alarms going off at night, um, and it gets to four o'clock in the morning, and I think I'm not going to get back to sleep. I'm not sweeping the laptop out, <laughs> and I did did, uh, did a lot of the work in a room. And I, I am naturally an early riser, and I find that quite often um, I do some of my best work before anybody else is awake. And then you think, uh, when when you've done some good work before breakfast, you think, well, the rest of the day is a bonus now. <laughs> so so that, that's how that happens. So some some of that is just circumstance. But also, it's, it's a deliberate career decision as well. You know, I have, like I said earlier, 
I've got to a time of life where I can think about what does the rest of my career look like? And I want the rest of my career to be focused on outcomes. Um, I think the agile community or, or the health of the agile community would benefit from you know, more focus on outcomes. Um, so I, 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 again, I think I'm writing a book that needs to be written. And uh, I'm, it's my probably my best chance to write a book for a mainstream audience as well. You know, it'll be a book that I hope practitioners will read, but also, you know, a book that you know that managers will read. I mean, one, one of my um, one of the phrases I came up with when I was planning it was, you know, a book that you would give your manager and hope that they would give to theirs. Um, so that's kind of gives you an idea of the sort of um, the the tone of the book. You know, it's not a you know, it, it won't ever be set as a university textbook. Um, you know, it, it needs to be readable. Um, but and and the you know the the theme needs to be one that people will grasp. Um, but it's a it's a theme that's contrary to the way that managers work now. It's a, a, it's a theme that's contrary to the way a lot of agile is done now. You know, and what, there's what too much. You, sorry, what what need are you meeting? <laughs> To go back to your definition, um, I I have had the benefit of, work, of working working in working environments where people are very focused on goals and understand that the technology is a means to an end and not the point, or they understand the frameworks are a means to an end and not the point. And when you go into organisations and you see people. Um, having stuff inflicted on them. When you work in organisations and you see people working on projects task by task, disconnected from the needs that they're going to be meeting by the work that they are doing, um, that's poor for them, but it's also poor for the organisation as well. You are wasting all the creativity of those people in your organisations. It's poor for the customers. If, you, if your way of delivering software is ticking off requirements line by line, you can pretty much guarantee that you will deliver a mediocre system. And I can give plenty of examples of mediocre systems. I'm sure you, you, can, you can think of them. Um, if you are focused on meeting needs and you take the trouble to see whether you're actually meeting them or not, you will build, you will build better systems. Um, and that is not as well understood as it needs to be. Um, and uh, uh, and even in, even in the agile world, I see too too much going on that makes me think that not everyone's got this, and it needs you know it, it needs to be said in as you know the word isn't forceful, but you know clear we need to we need to be clear that you know agile has to be different, otherwise we're just going to go back to back to do, doing it properly. <laughs> I'm still interested in for the manager that you've got in mind who's going to give this book to the, another manager. What what do you envisage the need you're meeting in that manager? Um, I I, th I think if a, if a manager understands um, how uh, it can work when uh, teams are working in an outcome oriented way, a goal oriented way, a value oriented way, and so on, in a way where they are taking seriously their responsibility to, to meet needs that unleashes something. 
um, and it helps them understand uh, their contribution to creating the environment where that is possible um, and helping them understand that some of the uh, existing structures in their organization are working with a default assumption that we are going to work to a plan and work through a list of requirements and not work in that more um, goal-oriented way. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I think it will um, give managers a, an, an understanding of that way of looking at Agile that will help them be better managers if their organization has a stated intention of um, embracing Agile in some way. So um, is, it, is, it, is it a need in them to become better, better managers? Uh, it's a need. I, you know, I hesitate to tell people to be better because um, it's a bit judgmental. Um, but they all need to behave in different ways if they want to uh, unleash that kind of creative creativity in their teams. If they want their teams to build products that um, do meet user needs and customer needs in a more um, satisfactory way, um, you know, by definition, that is better products, mm. and um, you know that should lead to business better business outcomes as well. You know, it should, in the end, be better for everybody. Um, and it's uh, I wanted to put that in a to, to, to clarify that as much as I can. It doesn't need to be deep, deeply technical, um, but it, it it does describe a very way, very different way of looking at how um, how teams deliver, how organisations deliver. Wonderful. Okay, well, I'm really looking forward to the book. Um, cool. I'm, I'm sure a lot of your uh, your fads out there are. Um, so, my final question I'd like to ask a lot of my guests is for you, Mike. What does it mean to be human? That's a good question. Um, it's, it's funny. I, just sort of at a personal level, I've been sort of confronted with the uh, the frailties of life in the last few years. Um, but um, I think perhaps not so much frailty, but at least fallibility is is, is part of being human and I think when we accept that we're all fallible in different ways we've all had very different experiences and that uh, shapes the way that we perceive the world and perceive each other um, you know and that starts to help you be a little bit more um, you know empathetic towards others and make things better for other people um, and I, you know, kind of wish organisations were a bit more like that as well. But well, they had systems that, you know, accepted that um, you can't regiment everything, um, that uh, you can't uh, control the duration of every task. Um, you know, and as soon as you try to do the what's actually not possible, you you make the organisation a little less humane and actually less productive. Um, so, you know. You kind of, uh, I mean, that's what something that, that's a phrase that David Anderson uses as well. You know, it's, uh, you kind of need to understand and respect the human condition. Um, and uh, I think if you can do that, that helps you be a better person in terms of how you relate to other people. But uh, I think you can build better organizations if you, uh, if you understand that as well. Yeah, okay. I can certainly agree with that. Okay, well... To wrap up then, where's the best place for people who've listened to this and want to understand and more, I guess, yeah. the Agenda Shift website? Is that is that the best? That's best a good place, place to start. Um, so agendashift.com, 
Um, if you're interested in the, in the three books, including the one still to be written, uh, agendashift.com slash books. We'll give you links to all, all three of them. Uh, we have a cool uh, Slack community. Uh, again, you'll easily find that from agendashift.com. Um, there's a whole load of um, free resources as well. Um, quite a lot of what I've produced is now Creative Commons. So the Clean Language game, for example, that I mentioned, um, you can download everything you need for that. There's a video um, showing it in use. Um, the, some of the games that I've produced, uh, Change Ban and Feature Ban, are there. Uh, some of the agenda shift uh, workshop materials, even I've I've open sourced, um, you know, not the whole thing, but certainly um, bits. But the digestible chunks of it um, have been open sourced. Um, so there's plenty there um, to look at. Um, there's a LinkedIn group as well. That's not as active as the Slack group. Um, it's more a play. Every blog post goes there. Um, so it's a way of keeping tra track uh, to that extent. Uh, there's a, uh, a monthly mail shop uh, goes out with a you know, summary of the month's uh, um, activity. Uh, but yeah, agendashift.com will, uh, will tell you where all of that is. Fantastic. Well, we'll definitely put a link to that in the in the show description and a couple of the other things you, you've referenced, clean language, viable systems, and, and so on. Well, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. No, it's been a great tour of all your work. I really enjoyed it. I hope, that, I hope the audience does uh, too. So, yeah, thanks once again. Mike Burroughs, thank you. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by first human for more on first humans human focused coaching and leadership programs head to firsthuman.com